Good people and fellow students, welcome to another episode of All That Yaz. In studio with us is a content producer extraordinaire known for different things within different streets, yet somehow he maintains an air of mystique. He is a two-time summer-nominated music video producer, having produced visuals for acclaimed rappers like Pretty Ugly and Shane Eagle. On an audio level, he has content produced for heavy hitters like Eusebius Makeza, DJ Savvy, and Kuta Tuleti, also racking up some radio Liberty Award nominations for his work and outside of that maintains a love for sneaker culture, hip-hop and all things entertainment. It is the one and only Mohao Mamafa. How are you doing, sir? You know, <laughs> thank you. But you know, when when you um, when I was listening to the interview you did with uh, Savvy and Savvy said your introductions make you feel like you've done more than you've really <laughs> done as a person. It's pretty crazy, actually. <laughs> was there any lies in my in my description, sir? No. No, so, um, no. <laughs> I'm painting an accurate picture of all. the person uh, that I'm talking with. It's, it's just that I, you know, with work, you, you it's always just work. It gets recognition, and you kind of detach yourself from from it. It's more about the work and the quality when it does get recognition and all that stuff. And you're like, yeah, it was a good job, but you always put yourself out of it, and you never realize that it has to do with you as well for it to be that great. So yeah, it's quite humbling, I should say. That is what we're here to do. I'm here to humble you, not humble you, but uh, <laughs> recognize you as as such. You actually forgot the title I always get, which is shocking, the best producer to ever do it. I get that a lot by the people I work with, uh, which is also uh, always interesting because, you know, when you came in the way I came into producing, it's shocking to, be called something so profound and true. But I always try to live up to that uh, standard. That standard. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yes. So how actually did you get into producing? Because your your range of work is so wide. It's quite hard to reconcile because going from music visuals all the way to audio to content and those two different types of content are very separate. How did you get into this space or into entertainment as a general field of work? The way it all started was actually the love of film. I grew up watching a lot of film with like a bunch of my friends. We used to share a lot of films and put our own list of the greatest films of all time and so on. Then we like really dived quite deep into the culture, finding out who's the director, you know, finding out who's the producer, these type of jobs and how you can get into it. You know, I had friends who wanted to be directors, I had friends who wanted to be actors and, and so on. And But like for me, uh, I, I didn't have the talent to kind of act or I, I wasn't that great as a camera operator or to visualize um, something from a, um, a director's perspective, right? I could come up with very dope like concepts and ideas. I even wrote like scripts when I was younger and stuff like that, but I could never get it right with the, the other crafts. So like producing, I think I didn't even know that I was a producer for a while when it started. So when we were younger, Obviously, we did some short films. We started doing the music video scene. And when I started in the music video space, I started as crafts and catering. And during that whole time, I was just observing how the whole like set works, you know, like whose duty is what and like, what does that mean? What is an art director? And yeah. then from there on, I just literally 
during all these music videos, especially we were doing in short films, I just literally just kept on getting skills and skills. When capacity will fall short, I started getting more responsibility. And then that's when I started slowly producing, you know. Even then, I still didn't understand what it was until I quit my job. First, I've done a lot of jobs, which a lot of people also don't know, like corporate and at some point after I finished varsity, I studied human resource, which also a lot of people don't know. Actually, I'm, I'm qualified. So I studied human resource. And after that, I got a job at like a high-end insurance company, which um, insures professionals. I didn't fit in because it was a, a suit and tie environment. And I would extend my casual Fridays to like a Wednesday where I start wearing like <laughs> jeans on a Friday and a hoodie. And on Monday, you know, I keep the shirt, but the sneakers, then a Tuesday, then a Wednesday. So next thing, you know, you're getting like written warnings. Then at some point I realized like, I just don't fit in here. You know, even when people would speak about progressions in the business and like their dreams and aspirations, it, it, they just never fit with me, you know? And at that time, because I already was quite a movie enthusiast and so on, I'm just you no know, talking about films I'm like yeah you should watch this you should watch that but people are very clueless on that I'm also very into music so I'm all discovering these new guys I'm like oh you should listen to this you know and like everybody's just looking at this weird kid and from there on I just quit I took my pension I said I'm gonna use that money to kind of you know support myself until something better came about but after quitting, you know, for a few months, I think about six months or so, I had nothing coming in, but at least I had that money keeping me afloat. And then I had a friend, shout out to Mdu, like I had this friend who was like a, a radio producer. And then what he would do so that I didn't become very stagnant and bored at home, he would pick me up like on weekends because he used to do a few shows. And then on weekends, he would do the breakfast show, which started at like 6 a.m. So he'll pick me up at like 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning and he'll just drag me to the show. And then I'll sit through the show and just watch this thing be put together. And during all that, like, it just clicked. I get this whole thing. I get what producing is. I get what I've been doing prior to this. I get where I am now and I get what I want to do in my future. And that's when I realized, like, yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a producer, but I didn't want to be just a radio producer i wanted to be an overall content producer my biggest mission even now is that i want to get award accolades of producing in every possible like creative thing field. producible yeah every creative field if it means that i have to even get into like a real producing way i actually have to create something which is gets manufactured and sold if that's possible i want that too that's how the whole thing came where i'm like i can't be just one type of producer i want to be the best to ever do it i want to be every type of producer and i want to be able to produce anything because for me it seems like when it clicked it clicked in such a way that it opened up this window of opportunities but it also opened up this understanding of things i think that's what passion is and like when you do something you love, it's like you open up this vault of understanding that you never knew that you had. And for you, things which might be difficult for other people, they come easy to you. Once I got the opportunity to just get my foot in, I never stopped. What was yeah. the first thing that you produced once you understood that you were a producer? I did early breakfast on 7.02, the weekend early breakfast from like 3 a.m. to like 6 with Errol Ballantyne. And even at that time, I, I thought I was a fraud. Like imposter syndrome was real, you know, because what I would do is that <laughs> I was being trained in the week 
So I'll be doing shows where like I'm, I'm being trained on different shows. So I'm there, I'm with the executive producers. They're giving me the rules and regulations. They're showing me stuff and I'm just like taking it in. Then on weekends, I get the opportunity to kind of like do a show, you know, do the producing and also do like the course screening and stuff like that. I think that was the first thing I produced. Wait, how many slots have you produced for? Because you're not talking about... Yo. <laughs> What time slots have you produced for? Or rather, what time slots haven't you produced for? I can tell you the ones I haven't done. Weekday breakfast and lunch, 12 to 3 on weekdays. That's it. Every other slot I've done. Is there a reason? It's progress. Um, So obviously, once you hit drive, it's drive, bro. I can't do lunch after <laughs> drive. It makes no sense. Okay, so for, for, for the for the listeners who don't know the importance of the different time slots, explain to us why okay. it's a regression or a progression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so drive time shows are the biggest shows on the radio station. Both drive time shows, we can say there's breakfast from like six to nine, and then there's um, drive, which is from three to six or three to seven, depending on the radio station. Those are the biggest shows on a radio station. So everybody who's working from graveyard and so on, their biggest dream is to reach drive because when you reach drive, you probably have the biggest listeners. You are the most commercially sellable, which means that you have a lot of like clients buying your space, which means you are the most hottest commodity on the station. Yeah, once you have drive at a space, if you don't move from, for example, from breakfast to drive, Right, though you only have two ways to move anyway. It's either you move from breakfast to drive or you move from drive to breakfast. And that's it. After that, you have to move from the station because there's nowhere else to go. You've practically reached the ceiling. I see. With all of these different slots that you've played in, because graveyard requires different different type of energy it allows for more rescue conversations um mm-hmm. than what one would allow at for example peak drive time what for you is in the art what is the art of a good segment what makes a good segment work uh whew. for me it's now revealing my secrets but, what did you so- think of <laughs> when you came on this show <laughs> <laughs> Bruh, they're buying this, man. They're buying this. I can't be sharing so much. How I produce, how I create a segment, right? I always visualize a show. I think maybe that's the benefit of doing also like video content and, and so on, is that when I like listen to a show, I close my eyes, or when I listen to a host, I close my eyes and I visualize it. And I I just see it play out on a cinematic way. And then from there. I take the personality. That's one of my favorite words they use for like hosts and stuff because it kind of tells you what they sell. They sell personality. So then I take the host and actually like assess their personalities, like figure out their desires, their hobbies, what they enjoy, what they don't, what they're afraid of speaking about, how far they're willing to go with conversations. And once I have that, I start building. So the the way I build first, I cut out certain things. So if I'm listening to the person, I can already tell like what crutches they have, not only like speaking crutches and stuff like that, but what things they gravitate to in a conversation more than anything else. Like for example, one of the most common, 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 common conversations on any radio station, which always is a crutch conversation that people always fall into is relationships and sex. Yeah. Everybody does it because it's the never most easiest conversation. 
exactly if you're listening to a show and you realize like you know even when you're expressing something or your expression about something or your discomfort about something always has to do with sexual windows or and so on it means that you are gravitate a lot into that type of content that risky sex content from there when i can tell that i'm like okay it doesn't mean that you're not aware and very intellect with other content it's just that you've grown so comfortable in that content and that content has kind of given you a loyal listenership has built some form of culture so it's easy content to do like you don't need a producer for that you just think about your experience the night before and put it together and you ask a question and people will jump in once I, I pull that under their rugs, under their feet, pull, under pull, their the, feet. pull the rug under their feet, yeah. Pull the rug under their feet. That's why you're here. That's when I start. So like, so my canvas is still blank, right? But I'm, I'm already like, I'm analyzing the person I'm working with. I'm already kind of listening to the way they speak. I'm, I'm, I'm analyzing their mannerisms. I'm, I'm analyzing what they gravitate to in conversations. I'm analyzing the way they speak when the mic is off. And, and the things they enjoy doing. I'm looking at their social media on things they enjoy doing in the weekend, the people who are the most important to them, the content they like consuming themselves. And once I have that, that's when the creation of a content starts. Segments for me, I always believe that it's what makes a show. A lot of people, some people kind of don't get it, but I'm very like segment orientated. Some shows don't really do segments that much, yeah. but I think that they're the best thing to carry a show because they work like if there's a segment on it at a certain time which i enjoy then i will always listen to that show at this at that certain time i might not enjoy the full three hour of that show but on that day at that time i can never miss it so that's what like i love about it but once i have that that's how, what like i build a segment from what the segment has to do is that the segment has to attract listeners and it has to incite conversation I'm a content producer, but I always produce the people first. My biggest thing is that when you work with me, right, and after you work with me, you have to leave with something. You, you won't notice, but it will change you. You'll realize that you've improved on something that you never even saw that, like, you had a problem with. So that's what I always do. And you can tell with, like, some of the people I've worked with, and you can tell, like, the way they've been after I've worked with them. You can see the improvement in the work they put out and in the way they approach things. So... Once you have that like going where you actually have learned how to produce people, then from there on the content is like secondary. It's pretty easy. Like you can suck it out of your thumb. But with segments is the same. Start with breaking down the person, right? And then figuring out the merger between the person and the listener. And then finding something which they will be proud to engage with the listener on. Then creating a culture around that thing. And that's a segment. That's literally it because it's a full culture thing. It's got loyal listeners. It's got engagement, fun. And it's got a person who's passionate about it all the time. So it never gets boring. That's the thing. If you just make up a segment for the sake of having a segment, there's a detachment to it. And you can even tell with hosts who are doing segments, which they found on the show or something like that, where... You come into a show and the show is already kind of structured. You can hear the, the execution that it's literally very clinical, very direct, executed very well, but there's never like the heart in it. And that's why people listen to that show. It's the personality. And then once you lose that personality, then it's just a radio show. There's nothing different between you and the person on the other station. I hope I answered your question. You have, <laughs> and it, it was a very, it's, it's, it's been a very unique experience for me, purely because I've done one of your segments. 
Yes, but the thing is that you notice by the time I came to you, I already knew what I was looking for. And you were sneaky and, about it. Because yes. <laughs> I, for those of you who don't know, I was on YFM doing a segment for two years called What's Hot on the Screen. But yeah. And I was approached literally, if the first time I did it was on Friday, it was Thursday morning. Yes. And he phrased it like this was a one-time thing. That was actually the first time I was, I've been on commercial radio in my life. And it was more so me recording on my phone. And then next thing, the following week is like, okay, again. And I'm like, what do you, huh? <laughs> it's like, no, we can, we can keep trying this. And then all of a sudden I'm in studio and I'm like, now, how did we get here? Okay. So uh, with that, obviously I knew the way my show was done, right? I knew that I was working with people who not only are in the entertainment industry, but also in, enjoy entertainment. People who, when they're not out and about at events and so on, they enjoy being at home and like watching content. And I realized also at that time that like, yo, the way things were coming in, if you think about it, it was a nice segment to have, especially because of when COVID came in, it's probably one of the most important segments to have on any platform, right? And you could tell like, yo, people get, what is it called? There's a choice paralysis uh, with regards to the amount of like yeah. content, which is because out there. Since there's a hundred options, there's none, yeah. or you'll not just, because there's a hundred options, you'll go to the thing that you already know because exactly. you just know what you're going to get from it. Exactly. So now you need someone who becomes an expert in telling you, this is what you need to watch. You can watch whatever you want after this, but because I'm saying it, this is what you need to watch. And that assists a lot of people. But to actually kind of backtrack a little on why the reason why I did it the way I did it with you is that when I spoke to you about it, I even remember that you said that you had no radio experience. And there was also a form of an anxiety with regards to public speaking, right? Yeah. If you kind of think about the way I built it, we started on audio for you to get comfortable with it. And we would come back to the audio. We would scrutinize it. I would raise issues if there was anything and we'll kind of like work on it and so on, right? Until we developed a proper pattern. Once we've developed that proper pattern and you've reached the comfortability of you knowing that the content you were putting out was going to the masses, that's when you came into studio. And by the time you came into studio, you already were comfortable because you were doing it. You understood the pattern of the segment and, and so on. So you can get into the studio and you'll be more excited about meeting the people you've been you know, engaging with or who've been engaging in your contact in studio rather than actually thinking about the fact that like hundreds of thousands of people are listening to you on air. Which is what, then, what then, was going through my mind the first yeah, day. Yeah, the first day. And remember what I said to you, I'm like, the biggest secret about doing the a first time radio interview is talk until you're asked to stop. Just talk, you, you'll be fine. And that's what you did. You, you kind of like figured it out and you'll notice that there would be control. Like, you know, Sabi would be there and he would have like the, the, the control. So he would know when to interject with you and so on, which allowed you to be free with what you were saying and created comfortability. Now, when you look at what you're doing now, who you've become now, you can kind of tell that it goes back to what I said from the beginning. I produce people, not content. <laughs> content comes after because you have to grow. It doesn't make sense to work with people who don't improve you. You know, I improve with the people I work with. So I need to improve the people I work with. And that's what I love about this job. It's that. But yes, anyways, you did that and it worked out. And look at you, you're so famous now. 
I'm so proud. <laughs> okay. Thank you, first of all, but I'm not famous. <laughs> no, man. I, you know, I love your work ethic and, uh, and you know, your endurance. I always tell you, like, I love the fact that you're always going at it. And I'm always advising you. I'm like, yo. Yes, that is the one thing, actually, that I wanted to say in the intro in that Mohal, part of the reason why I'm very excited, was very excited about this interview is the first podcast I did, the f- literally... F- Three hours after the podcast was posted, Mahal called me and he was like, no, keep going. <laughs> this, yeah. whatever you're doing, this thing. And every time I've released a podcast since, I think besides my family, you've been the most consistent person in terms of giving me critique and in terms of just saying, okay, I hear what you're doing here. Uh, you can either do this or in the case of Next Gen Greats, you didn't even have critique. You just said, this is really cool. We don't have enough of this. Keep yeah, going. I really enjoyed. Yeah, but that episode I really enjoyed. I remember Tyson ST. Shout out to that guy. I like I like his music. Really do. He Shout is, out to Tyson. I think he's my favorite local artist for the last two years. If I'm basing it purely just on what I resonate with without critiquing it, he is. Yeah, really- yeah, yeah. I I get it. I I really enjoy him. There's people who I've grown to really just like enjoy. I listen every every time he drops something. I'll have to listen to it. I'll judge it. If I don't like it, I'll judge it inside, but I'll never say it out loud. I'm like, no. <laughs> That's Tyson. No, man. I really, I really think it's dope. He's, he is also like, he's grown to being one of my favorite in essay. Your role as a content producer working within um, multiple fields gives you a unique position in that you work with creatives and with personalities all the time and within different functions. So you already kind of talked about how it is that you it is that you produce personalities but what are the some of the things which kind of go into actually navigating artist relationships i still you know even though i've i've developed like relationships with pr agents and managers and some artists and so on what i've kind of learned every artist is different and you have to kind of understand with regards to interviews and um, when you reach out, especially what are they getting out of it and what you are getting out of it. I think that's the the best way to kind of like navigate the whole bookings and so on. So the best time to actually book artists and so on is when they have something coming up. That then they are available, like <laughs> available. Your emails will be full with like it's dropping this Friday. I need like, you can give me 30 seconds on the show, maybe play the song, they're available. Then they become less frequent and available when there's nothing happening, which they feel like they need to speak about. When you get into that situation, then now it's a pitch. You have to pitch about what they're getting out of coming into the platform. Because if I don't have an album coming up, if I'm not popping currently, or I just feel like I'm on album mode, which means I'm recording and so on. I don't don't really want to like be out and about in public but yeah. if you pitch and you and you sell it in a different way then they're like hey it's not really like a like a, an interview about my current music maybe it's about the family dynamic when you're an artist and so on and it's something or it's something that relates to them quite closely then they will come through and sometimes it's just like you calling like PR people like you owe me this favor man one of the most important things especially as a producer is that you really need to build relationships with like and PR agents and managers, that thing will save you a lot because once you have that relationship, you kind of understand so much more about 
maybe the schedule of, of someone, the bookings, the demand, you, you, you know so much and it's easy for you to kind of bend and note into a yes. But it happens a lot. Artists not showing up for interviews or coming late or falling out of the interview before they arrive for whatever reason happens a lot. And I don't sometimes blame the producers and the show. I do think that there's also an onus and pride which has to be brought to the platform you are giving an opportunity to be on. No matter how small you regarded as someone looks at it as a big platform the thing is that when you're a smaller artist you take those opportunities so much you know if some if i actually call anyone who's up and coming and i say you're on my show tomorrow that guy will show up two hours early ready prepped ready to do it because they look at it as an opportunity the moment people are big they sometimes i don't know man like you can excuse it as being busy but sometimes there's a form of disregard with regards to the same platforms that made you the same people that made you are the people now you neglect. You know, now that you can get a thousand tweets on Twitter, you neglect the people who listen to just radio. But yeah, man, the, the, the best advice on navigating like artists and personalities is get into the relationship with their team. Don't speak to them directly because they sometimes don't really know like what's, what's going happening, on. like prob- what's going on. Get into a good relationship with their team. Then it'll save you a lot of time and stress. And then what about on the inverse of that in terms of if they're trying to get on your radar, how best is it for them, specifically the ones who don't have a team, to pitch uh, to properly? Esther must get a team, right? <laughs> it's, it's so much more easier. Um, I sh- you know what I do? I try my best. I honestly try my best and I've always tried. Um, it's something that I think I picked up from Sabi, Sabi really tries to assist up-and-coming artists. But one of the things which works against up-and-coming artists is that there's a lack of knowledge with regards to the industry they're actually participating in, you know? Even simple things like just simple etiquette of who's the right person to speak to when you're trying to get an interview on radio and stuff like that. For example, they will always try and actually go to the host and the host is going to say, Hey bro, if you want something, let's speak to the producer. He's the one who's actually like booking all these things, but you don't even know that's how it works. That like the best person to pitch something to is the producer rather than the host. It's kind of the, the misinterpretation of what this is. And then there's just artists who they concentrate so much on just music that they don't even think about all the other intricate things, which actually make you the brand. At some point you listen to, I don't know, let's say Shadow Drake. The Drake you are in love with, the one you're going to die for, the one who made people listen to that album, the one with the pregnant ladies, right? <sighs> you see, that Drake is the brand. That's the one people obsess about. It's not the yeah. music. Because when you, you've got your brand on lock, right? And Drake is a good example. You've got your brand on lock, bruh. You can make people listen to 2 Slide and like it. So... <laughs> that's that's all I'm saying. To this so, <laughs> day, for me, Tussie Slide, the fact that it debuted at number one was what told me that Drake's brand is so strong that people said that this is not a viral hit. This is yeah. a genuine hit. It's it's literally the when you when you have like your brand on lock, brand, you can make anyone eat anything. I think that the, the other thing I would actually probably raise is that first you must know who you're speaking to and also like know my work so well that when you pitch to me, you know which segment, for example, 
you're pitching to exactly that assists you so much because sometimes it feels like people will have like your contacts and stuff but they don't even know your show they've never listened to it for them they just see radio but if you know you're like hey Mahal I know you're the executive producer of like Kutu show and this is what I do right and I think I would fit well in this segment because of this and that and that and that I'm interested I'll give you my time of day and if it's possible I'll I'll make it happen but if you come to me you're like whoever ever is dropping this Friday is the hottest song on the streets at wherever we would like for an interview first do you even know if I actually have like a music segment on my show do you even know what it's called if I can tell that this is a simple like PR email yeah. and there's nothing I can take from it because sometimes you know PR emails come in and like oh yeah I, I like this I think it can work here but if you genuinely try to get on and you don't know the shows you're trying to get on and you don't know the segment you don't know where you would fit in on that show then it's not gonna assist you in any way best example is that there was this kid i just unfortunately i forgot his name right but he called the station he didn't even call on a he called like the receptionist and he says like hey i know that on kutsu show they have this thing called who killed the beat i'm a producer and i make beats and i would like for them to actually use my beats right that he gave us like this is my details this is where you can get the email address and stuff like that then we called him i called him we spoke he sent us like a big beat pack um we got his name and all he wanted was to share the beats and what we did is that we used that to also promo him as a as a producer to say like this beat we're about to use for this week is from this person and now he got the opportunity to actually showcase our his beats on on radio just because he knew to who to speak to and like what he was offering and how that would fit onto the show Yes. So specificity. Yeah. Where have you had better actual artist relations as a radio content producer or as a music video producer? It's different because you I think you interacting with the artists in different spaces, you know. Um while it's like a music video, they know that it's going to benefit them and they pay for it and everybody's just trying to get this thing out. So there's a lot of like collaboration and openness and then the other one it's more you know it's a tit-for-tat type of situation where i'm getting an interview from you you are getting a time from me so sometimes with that you don't even speak to the artist at all in the booking and so on so then there's less of like a relationship built unless you know the like artists on a personal level or you've worked with them prior to yeah but then there's more less of a personal thing it's more business business you know no i get that one of the things which um we've actually which we've spoken about off the record the spaces of mainstream and also just like indie stuff when we're talking about artists and we're talking about creatives and just the creative ecosystem the indie ecosystem sometimes a lot of the time feels like it has great content but what are some of the actionable things which can then still help the indie side become a lot more sustainable that it doesn't have to actually become mainstream to work mm. Or that it can also just be its own ecosystem that one can go mainstream but still maintain their indiness should they want. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, right? What do you think makes back in the days, let's say not now, let's not look at 2021, but back in the days, what would you think made like an indie artist pop? For me, it goes to positioning to, to then see how it is that they've made it to kind of become big is being able to kind of feel that whenever you're listening to them, you're getting a very unique and singular experience. And that even if 
for example, this song is playing within R&B and it's trying to be a pop song, there's something slightly to the left about it that feels very particular to that person in a way that even if anyone else touched the song, it would still be them. There's that thing that feels like you're speaking to someone personally and not necessarily a brand. I don't even know how I can like describe indie currently, you know, because I do feel that everybody has just one primary desire and that primary desire is to be popular. So it's always like a ticking time bomb on like how long is the music going to sound like this before it becomes mainstream. And what I used to really like is that it was always for the love of the music and building a community. And in that community, we all have the shared keen love of that music which means that an independent artist can stick to being independent, but still put food on the table. Yeah. But now most people just want to be famous. So even if the sound sounds indie, they still that that desire for it to be like number one on a top 40 and like be on covers and, you know, all that stuff. But as a question, is it... With our so, current system, is it sustainable mm. to not have that? Because because we no longer we no longer sell albums. You could just sell music, yeah. Yes. Prior to that, you could just sell music, and, yes. and and that's why I'm saying I don't even know the definition of indie right now because I don't know if it is sustainable if you're not really like moving in that way. Because like now you have to move, even if it's in a small pocket of your industry you have to move on the fast pace as the bigger guys to just keep being relevant to keep food on the table and so on one of my favorite things is discovering new artists and giving them that love but these days i do feel like it's it falls short because there's a bigger machine which is working against being an indie artist that for me there's no such thing as an indie artist there's just an artist who's either gonna pop or they will fail trying now, so. as a question, <laughs> do you think part of this has also been through the decentralizing of media? When I say the decentralizing of media, um, there's this, there's this um, fantastic video which talked about how R&B died in the late 2000s. It linked it not just to the fact that the R&B sound died, but between 2002 and 2005, a lot of the R&B platforms, which are specifically R&B platforms, became urban mm. platforms. And then when they mm. became urban platforms, they became hip-hop platforms, which meant mm. that the R&B people no longer had that specific space that they could actually go to already just break out already and get mm. attention, right? Mm. Now, the bigger the internet has gotten, actually, technically, the more decentralized it's been. So there's, mm. there are very few places where even from a South African perspective, that everyone knows. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everyone would have watched Morning Live, not watched it consistently, has a touchstone Mm. as to the importance of what that specific thing is. Now, since we have a generation of middle-class people who consume digital more than they consume anything else so so you have this digital culture and and separate from that you have this traditional culture and even within the traditional culture Mm -hmm. you have dstv and then you have your sabcs do you think in terms of actually since we're now in this space where everything is so decentralized Mm -hmm. that's leading into why you now have to find a way of dominating whatever you can 
because mm. there's no place that you can actually there are no places which are now allowed to cater to just that one thing yeah it was a very long question I, but yeah it was a long question but i understand it because um i remember we had a quick like a slight chat about it yesterday and i've been thinking about it and i wanted to ask you i'm like do you think it's decentralized or i may i might be making this word up or re-centralized the reason I'm saying that is the same way you say that uh, about 10 years ago, people would be waking up to watch Morning Live for um, the, the, the the news of the day and stuff like that, right? Now we don't do that, but we all wake up to log on to Twitter for the news of the day. You know, we do all we, wake up to go into... we all, if that's 10% of, not even 10% of, of, the, of the South the, African audience... But because 10% of the influential South African audience. Yes. That's the big thing, the influential South African audience. So that's why I'm saying, is it decentralized or re-centralized? Because all it's done is that it's shifted the audience to a platform which allows, I would say in like inverted commas, free speech. So now people don't want a clinical report on the news of the day. They want an opinion from someone on social media. But but even on social media, even when you look at it, right, and you look at it properly, it itself, different platforms as well, they also have like some form of like a centralized system of the person you would believe in reporting with regards to what's happening in the entertainment industry. You would have someone who you would gravitate to for the gossip and stuff like that. Even people want like um, certified and stuff like that. You could say a tweet now, right? and get like no engagement. And then someone else who is more popular on the platform says the same tweet and gets high engagement. Then isn't that centralized itself as well? I don't it's think it a, is. And I'll I think it is. That argument negates the very echo chamberiness of being on social media, right? Because for example, if I were to use um, Phil Pella, for example, right? Film Pella is quite possibly the loudest social media entertainment commentator that we have. He mm-hmm. is very much a centralized place of getting news and television for very mm-hmm. specific markets. However, if the stuff that you listen to, because the algorithm continuously notices what it is that you pay attention to, which is mm-hmm. even why... Um, For example, there is a difference between South African trends and trends for you. You can exist on an internet where you will never actually see Hopolo if you're, for example, Afrikaans. And sometimes if you've not even gotten to a place where you jump into Afrikaans Twitter and you realize it's a completely Mm. different place than Black Twitter and getting into a different where your Ronaldo Jose's people live because mm, it's not just mm, him mm. but there are multiple of those people you don't have all of these they're all on Twitter mm. yes but they're not all mm. playing around within the same conversation In, into your space but here's the, what I'm saying is that the fact that like there's already those different groupings it's a form of centralization the fact that like there's black Twitter it's a centralization the fact that there's African Twitter is a centralization is that we decentralize from each other's content but we are centralized in that system but if Do you get what i'm saying but if we're not getting the same information it's still decentralized isn't <laughs> to it to an extent because if i'm on black twitter i'm getting the same information the, it, on black twitter for example if we used to fill right and if there's a breaking news in entertainment and someone tweets and says hey 
this happened, right? Everybody waits for Phil to confirm. People actually tweet him. They're like, yeah, can you please confirm this news? And then from there on, he becomes like, once he's confirmed it, then it becomes the truth. Isn't that a centralized system? If then when you go to Africa's Twitter, there's probably someone like that as well. It's, so it's sent, it's decentralized because we decentralized to, to each other. Like as in, if I'm black, I'm not, I have no information about what's happening in the Afrikaans Twitter unless I have access to it in whatever the algorithm has been created. But I have a lot of access to what's happening on Black Twitter or Joburg Twitter. So that's why I'm saying that, like, is it decentralized or re-centralized? Because now it's different, but it's still centralized in some form or way. And if you think about it, there are people who actually have huge influence on those platforms and they control the narrative of what's happening there or they control they have control of the engagement and so on in one way or the other there's people who've really mastered those um, platforms and they capitalize with them isn't that like centralization in a way i hear what you're saying and you're making a very strong argument which i have to agree with to a point <laughs> but then if we're taking that recentralization and not everyone knows those specific access points because we haven't gotten to a point where, for example, we have enough people on Twitter or we have enough people on social media, it then becomes still harder to then break through everywhere because someone can be really, really hot on Twitter or hot on Facebook, but to someone who is not internet savvy, does not exist. Okay, I hear you. That's true. But then with them, they're still centralized. Right, but they centralized in their re-centralized system while we centralized in our system of like social media and but so But now on. you have so, two separate <laughs> systems, so it's still decentralized. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what but I'm just trying... what I said to you. I've always said like we de- decentralized to each other. Like if I'm online and I'm on social media and all those things, right? And then there's someone who's not on, on, on social media, and then we decentralized. But they have a system, right, which they follow, which is centralized. Mm-hmm to their lived experience. Yeah. Because for example, like majority of the country actually is not on like um, Twitter and social media and, and, and so on because they can't afford it. The data prices are too high and so on. But they still follow like, you know, traditional TV and radio and so on, which means that's also like a system they centralized it. I, I do believe that there is a, a huge misconception because we are the influential few. We have quite a lot of control on like quite a lot of what's happening in the country. Like everybody's trying to speak to us because we speak to each other a lot. I think maybe that's the thing about social media. We speak to each other a lot. So everybody feels like if you can convince us, right, you've convinced the country. But everybody forgets that majority of the country doesn't even know who's trending on on Twitter today, who's being canceled. They still follow um, what's happening there on the news and so on. They still follow traditional media. When I look at it is that obviously there's a priority in the way the system is, right? All the people who are the money makers and so on are on social media. They revere social media as this juggernaut of decision-making, which has dire consequences on people and companies and so on and so forth, right? Because if you think about it, all the 10% of the wealthiest South Africans are on this re-centralized system, right? And those people decisions right affect the 90 percent of the rest of the people it's one of the most profounding things because now what we will do even when it comes to like engagement and content and stuff like that we will prioritize that 10 percent and what they are interested in take that conversation and regurgitate it to the rest of the 90 percent who sometimes don't even have an idea of what's happening in that elite world 
So it's one of the most weirdest things. And like, I always sit and think about it, that if like we are doing a due diligence and justice with some of the opportunities which we have to really like spread information and not be dictated to by certain like platforms on how to do things on the way things should be done but to have like a unicentric conversation that we know that it only doesn't relate to the people who are going to be tweeting and stuff like that but also people on the ground who are going to be calling because they're not on twitter and they're listening and we're going to be sending sms's and so on like do you know it's interesting that sms's aren't a thing <laughs> currently it's like we've assumed that everybody i don't know how many people are on whatsapp in south africa but we've assumed that everybody has migrated to whatsapps well we have countries with high with very high rates of data tend to have very high rates of um whatsapp usage and that makes sense but it's it's an interesting time. I think obviously it's inevitable that everybody is going to be online, but I think there's also an ignorance with regards to understanding that most of the people actually aren't. We assume that everybody owns a laptop and a computer at home. But when I look at the way I was brought up, bro, the first time I've ac- I had access to a computer, I was like probably like in grade 11. That's the first time. And it was like just a computer. The first time I had a laptop and I had internet, I was probably like in varsity. Some people haven't even had that access. We live in this utopia of assumptions and... I think it's a dystopia, personally. Dystopia, yeah. It's not a utopia, right? Like a dystopia. It has so much, like, influence. It's scary. It's scary how much influence this whole system has on the majority of the country. Bringing this back to you, this continues. Where do you see this dichotomy of things affecting your type of content production, let's even say two years from now? Because it already has in that it already has the first people to kind of adopt even the whole thing of Zoom recording your interviews, yeah. that and yeah. so th- there's already the correlation of you yeah. speaking to multiple factors, but then where mm. you think is continuing to go between the relationship of traditional media and digital. What um, has happened in the past two years has kind of given us an example of what you have to do when the system changes, you have to change, you know? So immediately when we realized that we won't be able to be getting guests in studio and so on, we said, okay, we're going to jump into um, video interviews. And we jumped into it pretty early and we ran with it while people were still using Zooms for just normal meetings. What do you, you also realize is that it, 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 it's, we, we living in um, a, a, what is it, a reality of where there's a many, I don't know if I'm making sense of many, because f- like now, Zoom was the most uh, used um, platform, like, but now I don't know how many like video um, uh, meeting platforms exist, you know, and that's that's the the the, the type of like, world I think we're going to have in the next couple of years, where we, we're going to have quite an overdose of um, platforms, you know, for engagement and communication and so on. That it's going to be. Then it, I think by then it's going to be really like decentralized. Like, you know, how like WhatsApp was cool until there was that uh, whole thing about um, the, the the policy they wanted to introduce. And Yet then when WhatsApp went down, we were all, we were all yeah, in our jails. Yeah, we were all, <laughs> so exactly. Not everyone. But, but, but Telegram, Telegram got numbers. I, I know that there weren't like excessive numbers, but people moved the same way they moved last year. I know that they probably got more numbers after WhatsApp went down, but that's that's what's happening. Like I think the bigger authorities of like of platforms, right, 
are being like um kind of like shrunk slowly but surely because new platforms are coming up you know and now when it, it becomes like that right then it goes back to i always describe like things as as netflix i love the, the analogy of 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 netflix because I, I like to use it for wealth as well but um i'll use it for this for the, this answer like you know now it becomes an issue of netflix of like being on netflix where like you have all the content in the world that you would love to watch but you can't just pick right you can't pick so i think that we're going to go into that and i'm hoping once we go into that we might i don't know now i'm just being idealistic we might actually gravitate back to just simple conversations and engagement and i think maybe that's what the future holds i don't know we'll see but for me i i don't i i can't really predict technology because we didn't even see zoom coming zoom came out of nowhere we didn't even use skype when when like we couldn't do interviews, Zoom just came out of nowhere. And like, so with content producing, I think the best thing to do is actually adapt with the times. And, but even when you do adapt with the times, one of the things you need to be aware of is that you must still, still stick to your foundation and your, of how you do things. Don't allow um, these new technologies that are cool and funky and stuff really dictate on how you, maneuver content because people still enjoy listening to people that's why podcasts are a thing that's why radio is still a thing it's still not dead even though people think it is it's not at all at all but yeah with your relationship with radio and with you having grown because okay let me rephrase the best drive pioneered what we've kind of been seeing from a south african perspective in terms of just doing the the zoom interviews where you're now not just doing content specifically for radio but you're using you're appealing to the international markets during this specific time what was the thing which actually what happened for you once lockdown hit that caused this innovation that's um to start moving the way you guys were moving within the last year of Best Drive, which has now kind of become not a standard, but very much a standard with a lot of shows ever since. Yeah, it, it has become a radio standard. It's it's funny because we always say we changed radio. <laughs> we did, we changed radio. So at the time, lockdown happened just before we launched our show. So people were working from home and so on. We realized that as a team that we were, we were very ambitious as it is, and we wanted to already go big sabi being sabi sabi was already into like interviews especially we already had something like listening sessions where you could sit down with like artists and do interviews and so on that was gone because we couldn't get guests in and then like we had like other segments we thought that they'll be cool and stuff and we've just started reworking them to become more entertaining for listeners we knew that they were at home now but like a lot of the stuff which had to do with person-to-person -person engagement and that whole thing was gone i don't remember how the conversation started but i remember like for for a while because sammy and i right one thing we do is that we like to talk about radio we have a strong passion for radio we also like to look back to some of the best moments on radio and some of the cool things we were like yo this was so dope, you know, remember how radio used to sound like this and how people used to gravitate to stuff like that. And one of the things I know the year before, at some point, we were speaking about how like Tibo used to just shock the country and have like maybe a clip interview with your favorite, favorite artist from the US and he will hold on to it 
and you will promo it the whole show and you're just waiting to hear this guy yeah. speak to you know what i mean and you're like how how does this guy you know get there and so those are like amazing things and we're sitting here like you know things like that don't happen anymore you don't get that type of radio which makes you feel like geez how are these people doing this like how much like access do these people have for them to be able to do that? At the time we're looking at our show, we're like, yo, dude, this show already, it's kind of like, it's hot. It's not only hot on like the frequency, but it's hot as in it's urban forward. I mean, we're like driven by urban culture. We were already speaking to like the up and coming artists, the people who we feel like they have something um, happening and they, you should be on the lookout with access to that. We already were speaking about the latest in film and TV and so on. You know, we had Alta Vis, who's like a baddest actress. You know who's a star then from there on savvy's got africa boombox we're already like accessing africa that no one else is doing that but we wanted more and we're like you know actually technically you can look at us as the is it the breakfast club of sa mm. that's how we started thinking about we're like with the breakfast club of sa but we're like no but we can't be the breakfast club of sa because we don't have that access of yeah. like all those other people but imagine if we had access to all those other people and i think like while we're brainstorming and we're just having a chat about like yo dude all these artists are home and like and i think it was a chat about bookings you know and we're like yo all these artists are home they're not getting bookings you know because everybody has to stay and it's a lockdown and so on and we just chatting then we realized like but wait man the whole world is on lockdown everybody's at home you know yeah. <laughs> literally everybody's at home and people would love some pr like right now don't like to speak to anyone because some people are home alone they haven't had any engagement with anyone in a long time and i think once it clicked we we're like let's reach out and at the time i remember we were already using zoom and the office for our meetings with like the rest of the station and stuff like that and then we started like exploring zoom and realized like yo it actually you can record interviews and stuff like that and then from there we just said why don't we just reach out to these people I mean, they're home and now like a manager would be so happy to get a, like an artist, an international interview during a time like this. And I think that's where it came from. And I remember the first one was, um, the first interview we did was Kelani. And when we got Kelani, it was, I didn't believe it. <laughs> I didn't believe it was real, you know, even though like I was the one who was booking and, you know, setting up the Zoom, sending the links, all that stuff, right? And at the time I remember, one of the prerequisite of the whole thing was, yeah, she's not going to do it with the camera on, blah, blah, blah. Then I was telling Sabi, and Sabi's like, nah, I'm just going to have the camera on. She'll, she'll open it when she feels like, but I'm going to have the camera on. So Alta Vis and Sabi are there, the setup, and immediately the Zoom goes in and Sabi says, hi, right? And then she opens the camera and she's just there and you're just like, whoa, it's really happening. It's yeah. like that's her you know that's Kelani. like then i think even that interview kind of gave us like the real view of what's happening because she's at home she's in like a tank top you can tell like she's comfortable yeah it confirmed what we were already like speculating about the fact that these people are at home now they're willing to talk because you don't have to go through so much red tape to get to them anymore things are moving even though i'm at home and that then we used that to actually catalyze on the whole thing we started like really reaching out to people i remember one of the craziest ones so i'm a big big jack harlow fan and i'm not like a what's popping fan i'm like a jack oh, no, fan no, no. from his old stuff like i love jack Harlow. like so with jack Harlow, i remember the remix of what's popping was about to come out and what's popping was my ringtone already at the time i think it was like a thursday and it was coming out the next day i got an email about the remix dropping and the exclusive i just sat there and i'm like you know what if i don't know i mean it's 
it's promo, what if? So I call, I call the label and I say to the lady I was speaking to, I say to her, I'm like, yo, I'm gonna ask you for, for something. I know it's impossible, but I'm gonna ask anyways. I'm like, yo, Jekyll is dropping this remix and he's dropping it during the lockdown and he needs some promo. Do you think you'd be interested to doing um, an interview with us? Then I explained, I think by then we already did like Kilani, Masego and a few other people. Yeah. And then from there, I'm like, this is what we do. I can send you links to the interviews and stuff like that. And I think it would be great for him to actually find out that he has a fan base in South Africa, especially now because of this new single. And I even say to them, I'm like, dude, we're even going to play like the song in the next, because I was calling during the show. I'm like, we're going to even play the song in the next hour. You must listen. And after I say that, she says, oh, no, I'll, I'll try and find out. And after I do that, I actually call, like, the music department and I ask them, like, yo, man, is it possible for us to play, like, um, what's popping around, like, 1720? Dude, I, you know, we're going to be working speaking the about the remix. Yeah, we're going to be speaking about the remix. It's dropping tomorrow and so on. So, um, luckily, she actually, I think, gave it a listen. And I told, like, the team, I'm like, bro, you guys, when you speak about this, because we're still doing urban music news with Altovis, and, like, when you speak about this um, remix dropping tomorrow, you must put hype on it. It's, you know, I'm really chasing this person. I really hope we're going to get them. And they did it, and they put hype. We played the song. It was great. Yeah, and I think about, like, a week or so, they booked the interview, and and that's how we got Jack Harlow. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> okay, we're on to something now. And then from there, we got like a lot of other people, like, you know, like the honorable mentions, like, you know, Chloe and Haley. And you know, it's great, actually, just to digress, is that most of the people we got, right, when we got them like last year, people didn't really understand how big of an impact these people had. And it's funny that like a year later, They're... these people are like, super super mega stars like mega mega oh no because i remember so it's like being uh, here just messaging you because the thing is i was because since this was lockdown even though it's still that why i wasn't there and i'm like what do you mean you have chloe and hallie what do you mean you have what do you mean right and people I feel like I'll send you like a message like that every two weeks. I'm like, okay, Mohal, let's let's have a conversation around the fact. The fact. You know, this is who you have. What do you mean, Snow Allegra? What's going on? It was one of my my favorite things. As you can see, we have like developed quite a culture, even the relationships and stuff like that. Because one of the things we really wanted to do, even when I would speak to these labels and stuff, we always said that we don't want to play clips from other interviews and stuff like that we want artists to feel that south africa is also a place to do pr in because they do pr everywhere else in the world they should feel like there's a place you know there's a platform you can go to and do pr in south africa because i think that's why savvy had said that in his um, yeah in in our episode five yeah and that and that's the thing and and i think we built that and we built it so well because it's grown so much and i i know that no one is on a sentence like and give us credit it's like we did it but i've we've seen it in different radio stations we've seen people have access to amazing people you know and we glad that you know we started something that can be that now where you can just have like a i don't know an ed sharon all these other dope guys who back then it was not a thing it was always a fantasy so yeah. it's it's made us feel more important so now in getting closer to rapping, your journey, as you'd already put it with, with regards to content production, started with phone. And one of the things which you already mentioned as well in terms of the things which you want to achieve is to be able to get acknowledgement or acclaim an award in 
all of the main entertainment field as a producer. So mm. when are we jumping back into film one and two? Uh, <laughs> for you, where are you seeing the next like five years for yourself being? Yeah, it's the, the, the film space. I hope soon. I mean, I think after TV, I'll come back to film. I didn't study producing in any form or way. So I, I actually learned from experience, like really gaining my experience in everything I do. That's why I have a system of like, once I'm, I'm good at this type of producing, I have to start doing another type of producing because it's like me going to school. I'm literally being taught in the space so that I don't feel like I'm an imposter in those spaces. So currently... TV is the is the mission, then I'll do film. But also, even though I do that, my first passion and love is radio. So even though the other stuff I don't mind, because most of the stuff I did do while I was doing radio, like I did produce like uh, music videos and stuff while I was still doing radio. This you know, man produced first. one of my favorite music videos of the past five years. And also, I think one of my favorite South African music videos ever with Yellowverse. I just have to have to throw. Yellowverse was so dope, eh? I love Yellowverse. I actually remember trying to figure out if I could enter it into the South Dance because I was so sure like I could get something from here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so dope. I think it was ahead of its time. It's it's one of my favorite, favorite works I've ever worked on. But my, my next five years. I'm still planning to be in radio. I would like to see myself on the more of a managerial position. I'm literally doing the traditional way of progressing, especially in radio. Literally started from the graveyard as an intern and I've worked my whole, whole way to drive time because I started on talk radio and I got into commercial radio. I want to move into the bigger commercial radio. Then I want to move into uh, being a programs manager and then being a, um, a station manager. So in the next five years, I'm looking at that very closely. I want to see myself either as a programs manager or even bigger as a station manager. And then from there, who's to, who's to say? Maybe five years from now, I mean, 10 years from now, I have my own radio station. I already have one in mind, but that's that's how like I, I see myself moving. First of all, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Um, this has been a very explorative conversation, which I think a lot of people can get a lot from, from just even the stories and just your very, very analytical perspective, not just of what it is that you do, but the entire entertainment in industry and how it is people can approach it or just the general standing of it. If people wanted to follow you, get to know you more, even just engage with you, what are the right channels um, that they can do so? They can just follow me at, at StrawHatMo on Instagram. I think it's at StrawHat underscore Mo on um, Twitter. Yeah. I'm not on TikTok because I quit dancing a long time ago. <laughs> uh, actually, and I'm a pretty I'm pretty open to engaging with people. So that's that's my space. Thank you for having me. And it was dope. It was dope. I really enjoyed myself. I, I hope I didn't say something offensive to anyone. If I did, I'm sorry. Yeah, just don't troll me on social media. I'm not that type of person. <laughs> don't troll me. And and like the interesting thing about Straw Hat Mo is the the fact that I got the name from my favorite anime character, Straw Hat Luffy, who's like a pirate on one of the longest running animes of all time. It's been running for 20 years, called One Piece. And yeah, 
that's that's about it so if y'all wanna geek out on anime you know who you can you you can add on yeah. to and just be like let's yeah. go yeah anything any anime which like i can give you even steps on how to get into the anime what you should start watching if you want to really understand the culture and the hype around it but thank you again elizo for for the for the interview it was pretty dope um i enjoyed myself and i hope like people um yeah gain some knowledge from this and if like you guys are hiring like hire homie you know <laughs> i'm joking <laughs> man saying he is looking hey, man. hey no no i'm joking i'm just shooting my shot but like for for real like um shout out I, i really like this platform it's nice to see people who um masters in their crafts share knowledge on what they do and thank you so much for coming on to it because this is for me a very full circle moment because i don't think i'd have gotten here had you not tricked me into radio um, i didn't trick you i pulled you in i dragged you into radio there's a difference <laughs> there's a difference and that was the 19th episode of all that yes thank you so much for listening if you'd like to interact with me personally you can do so on my social media which is yes the student yazz the student on instagram and twitter and if you'd like to inquire anything about all that yes specifically you can email us at all that yes podcast at gmail.com you can also find that information in our description below so yeah thank you so much for your time thank you so much for listening i do hope you enjoyed this episode and we shall see you fellow students and good people on our next episode of all that yes